You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, I'm Arya Cohen-Wade, and you're watching Culturally Determined. And my guest today is Max Reed. Uh, Max, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, I'm Max Reed. I'm a senior editor at New York Magazine, uh, where I write and edit uh, stories about technology and the internet um, for the Intelligencer blog. Uh, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, we're going to be talking about an article that you published a couple days ago um, that I thought was really interesting and had a lot of connections to uh, We go in a lot of directions with it. Uh, the headline was Kanye West, Donald Trump, and the reign of human clickbait. And it was the jumping off point was this um, historic meeting between Kanye West and Donald Trump in the Oval Office that was televised uh, live. Um, it, you know, it ran on the networks and... Um, so people probably heard about this if they didn't. So I actually hadn't seen more than like a few seconds of it before, before today. And then I watched about half of it. Um, it may be worth watching some of it just so you can really see what it was like, but, uh, how would, how would you describe this meeting? Um, I mean, maybe the way to describe it is as really good television. I mean, it was just like incredible. I found it fascinating in the way that like a car wreck is fascinating i mean not to sort of like over determine the memoir the, the metaphors i'm using but it uh it had that that rubbernecking quality of something that just uh shouldn't be happening in any way but is is madly fascinating to watch happen um i mean just to to be specific about what happened is kanye west arranged a meeting with donald trump because kanye um has sort of uh famously become I mean, it's, it's probably fair to say famously become like the entertainment world's most prominent Trump supporter, um, you know, across music, movies, TV, whatever. Yeah. Uh, Kanye, who is who was previously most famous for the for his most famous political mo moment was going on stage during a Hurricane Katrina um, telethon and saying George Bush doesn't care about black people right. um, coming out in the spring and saying he supported Donald Trump. He bought himself a MAGA hat um, and obviously Trump ate this up for 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 reasons that are that are sort of clearly apparent um and and they arranged some kind of meeting in the white house and uh they opened it up to the press and um you know i think it's interesting kanye's wife kim kardashian set up a meeting with donald trump there was not no press in that meeting and she had a very specific kind of dis, like uh what's the word request she was looking for clemency for a grandmother who'd been uh given a life sentence for a nonviolent drug conviction there was no real request on hand here this was what ended up happening was kanye ranted for about 10 minutes straight about whatever was on his mind i mean sort of the most memorable moment was when he found a gif of a hydro of a hydrogen powered plane online and told the president that he wanted to replace air force one with this plane the president to which the president said yes we're going to do that um and you know people just ate it up it was like it was and like i said even as somebody who found it kind of disturbing in a bunch of ways it was very difficult to look away from uh, and certainly that was the way the network programmers felt yeah so i i you know it's i think it's generally pretty unusual to have um, someone come into the Oval Office and do more than like the standard like pleasantry, shaking hands with all the photographers there and the you know the cameras yeah. streaming it live, and then the you know the cameras are ushered out and like the real business of whatever they're um, talking about uh, occurs. Um, whereas this was more like um, a performance. Yeah, I mean a rant would be one way to describe it. Um, he talks. More or less nonstop um, for ten minutes uh, in a very like associative way. He's jumping from one topic to the next. Um, he's talking about 
uh, the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery. He's talking about uh, manufacturing jobs in the American Midwest. He's talking about a hydrogen plane. Um, he's talking yes. about the universe. Uh, he's making strange connections between, like, the 13th Amendment and, like, the 13th floor in a building that, like, the builders skip so, because they're unlucky. And he's like, well, what do you think about that? And Trump is just kind of sitting there, like, you know, look, doing, like, a serious face. And Trump actually – I was actually impressed by – at one point, Trump corrects one of his facts. Like, I was impressed that Trump knew which state the Foxconn plant was supposed to be in Wisconsin, not Minnesota. Um, but I, I was I was thinking, like, what is what is Trump possibly thinking while this is happening? And then I, I realized, like – well, imagine how many meetings he has to sit through where he doesn't really understand what's happening, and he just sits there and like does a serious face and nods and looks concerned, and that's probably just just what he did. So yeah, so this was like a real meeting of the minds, and and then the question was, um, well, an, a, another thing uh, Kanye mentioned is that uh, during this rant was that he has been diagnosed as bipolar, and uh, he also said that that was a misdiagnosis. He since had another doctor tell him that really it was uh, he was suffering from insomnia. And right. uh, that could cause memory loss, and then he would forget about his child, and um, you know how bad that would be. Um, so okay, so obviously, so Kanye has has had a serious medical diagnosis, and is not believing that diagnosis, or is not like following the directions that the proper <laughs> you know proper medical provider told him to do about like what medication right. to take or what behaviors to do and not. And he's like in the middle of you know. I think we can guess that he's in the middle of some kind of manic or hypomanic episode, like, you know, talking to the most powerful person on earth. So, yeah. Like, it's weird. I mean, it's, <laughs> it, yeah, it's very weird. It was, um, you know, I, it was, it was interesting you saying like, what was Trump thinking while he was in there? And one thing I was thinking, I think you're absolutely right that there's probably in a lot of meetings where he has no idea what's going on and he doesn't understand it. But if there's one thing that he knows, it's, like, I mean, just putting it in terms of the terms that he was using for Ted Cruz, it's like he knows when people are high energy and he knows when people are low energy and he knows that high energy makes for great TV. And Kanye was so high energy that I'm sure it like, didn't matter that he was spouting nonsense. He knew that this was a thing that made him, that gave him more airtime, that gave him more screen time. That, like, you know, I think I don't want to underestimate Trump's intelligence, but I think like the real por portion of his intelligence is a recognition of how to participate in televisual media. And he knew, regardless of how of what Kanye was saying, that this was a moment that was going to be widely, you know, uh, covered, read, examined, thought about, etc. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I agree. Trump has a, a genius for televisual and how to, you know, present yourself uh, on the, you know, so the cameras um, won't look away. So, yeah. So, I mean, you expand out to kind of talk about... Um, you know, Trump's general persona and how, you know, the uh, the media, especially during the campaign, less so now, used to air his rallies just like live and unedited. And and the, I mean, the reason to do that, the obvious reason is that um, with Trump, you never know what he's going to do. He might say something totally yeah. crazy. And and then everyone will be like, what did he just say? You know, we have to, you know, what, what does this mean? Um, so Trump's like unpredictability is a asset in terms of like getting attention from, from modern media. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, yeah, I mean, his Kanye unpredictability, his, with, with his, yeah, his tweets also did, did a similar thing. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, it's unpredictability. It's like that high energy kind of, um, nonstop, like unstoppable sense of forward momentum. It's the self-aggrandizement. Like there's this, you know, this is, and this is sort of, this is, gets to the heart of what this, of, of the way I've been thinking about this stuff is there's these, this set of qualities that both Trump and Kanye share, qualities that make them really captivating, um, 
people who are on the really captivating television stars, uh, essentially stuff like, uh, ego, egomania, like, uh, unpredictability, etc. And what's clear and what's especially clear in the case of Kanye, as you're saying, like it seems, um, or let's, let's put it this way is that those, that set of qualities is the same set of qualities that a psychiatrist or a clinician would use in a clinical setting to diagnose something like bipolar disorder. Um, you know, the, the sort of catalyst for this for me, um, and I actually spoke to him, is Dr. Alan Francis, who's a professor emeritus of psychiatry at Duke and who was uh, the chair of the board that wrote the DSM-4, which is the clinical Bible for uh, diagnosing uh, mental disorders. And, um, you know, he said, I emailed him to sort of ask him about this, and he said correctly, obviously, that, like, it's impossible to diagnose people from a distance. It's really difficult to diagnose celebrities. You know, that what Kanye is doing, it could be um, sleep deprivation. It could be manic depressive disorder. It could be just the way a particularly creative person acts. It could be the way a particularly adept showman acts. Um, it could be some combination of all four, which like seems about as likely as any of them. But um, I was talking to him because he had this, he wrote a letter to the editor of the Times uh, last year in 2017, in January, February of 2017, that has really stuck with me since the, um, since it was written, where he pointed out that, you know, there's, there's this sort of a movement among some psychiatrists to insist on um, diagnosing Trump or talking about Trump in the context of mental illness. Um, and specifically, you know, with uh, discussing him as, as suffering from a narcissistic personality disorder. And Francis's point was that if you, if you read the narcissistic personality disorder entry in the DSM, which is what a clinician would use to, to diagnose somebody with it, you'll note that, like, yes, Trump follows many of the, you know, he, he has many of the qualities that would lead you to diagnose somebody with NPD. But he, the sort of final moment of this, and this is true also of, you know, manic depressive, of, 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 uh, uh, manic depression, is that it has to be disruptive to your life in some way. That, you know, like, at some point we're entering this kind of, like, you know, psychiatry, there's a, there's a, has an odd epistemological kind of aspect where if you think something, um, that we might describe in a sort of colloquial way as crazy, but it's not actually disrupting your life in any way. You can still maintain relationships with people, you know, participate in society in a meaningful way. If you're not harming or hurting yourself, it actually, you, you probably shouldn't be diagnosed with mental illness. And I think that makes sort of intuitive sense. Like, you know, I, I might believe that the moon landing never happened, and that might be sort of crazy in some way that I don't believe that, that happened. But if I can do everything that I need to do as a human being and without, like, disturbing or hurting other people, there's no real reason to, to medicalize me or anything like that. And so what what happens with somebody like Trump is you have a person who is suffers from many of the same, you know, like, or suffers is actually exactly the wrong word, who has many of the qualities that somebody diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, but he has never suffered for those. In fact, he has been, as as Francis puts it, richly rewarded for all the many things that, that might make him otherwise a, a, uh, a narcissistic persona. And Kanye is in this similarly sort of interesting position where, you know, I don't think it's quite fair to say that he hasn't suffered for you know, the kinds of things that he's done that might lead him to be diagnosed with manic depressive disorder. But he is, uh, it is kind of lucrative for him, frankly, like that he gets more attention at a moment when uh, it's very difficult to get attention. Yeah. And you know that he was, he was kind of like out of the conversation for a couple years. And then he started uh, tweeting earlier this year in a, um, you know, unusual eccentric way. And there are people who are like, you know, oh, he's it's just showing his genius yet again that he's like manipulating social media in this way. And everyone is, you know, he has like 10 million followers and then hundreds of thousands of retweets. 
And then you know, the other perspective, like, no, this seems like maybe a hypomanic episode of his just like constantly yeah. rattling off like tweet after tweet. Um, but it, you know, it got him more attention and, um, you know, he, uh, I mean, okay. So part of like, part of the fact that we pay attention to these people seems like, you know, like human nature. Like if you see someone who's acting in a very strange way on the street, you will like kind of keep an eye on them, I guess, mainly to make sure they don't like injure you or, or something like that. Um, uh, so that, that makes sense. But at the same time, it's like, why, why now are we, you know, these celebrities from 30 or 40 years ago wouldn't have tried something like this, I don't think. Like, you know, celebrities who have had um, mental illness in a way that affected their lives, like uh, Carrie Fisher, you know, became like a laughingstock, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah. That this was not, I mean, I think that this is not like a smart right. career move. So what do you right. think? What I, mean, do you think, I, think it, I have a theory. So, what do you think it is about now that has made it made it? I mean, I, well, like I, this is this is sort of my hobby horse. So like I, the 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 um, I think well, there's a few things. One is that like I think this trend, the sort of trend of I don't want. So I, I, the answer to that question to me is social media along a few different axes. But I do before I even like launch into that particular rant of mine, I do think it's important to note that like this is, social media did not. So utterly transformed the media landscape that this was not, that this set of incentives didn't already exist. And when I say this set of incentives, I mean the incentive of both people who want attention for themselves to act in ways that are, you know, consistent with diagnoses of mental illness. But I also mean the incentives of news networks, of journalists to cover those people because other people will pay attention to them. And those those incentives existed and have been sort of heightened. They've existed for years and they've been heightened by uh cable television and now by the internet and particularly by social media. And I, I say that social media like accelerate. So the dynamic at heart is if you are a publisher in the 20th century, if you're a publisher, you know, at all, if you're a journalist, the basic business model is that you are attracting people's attention and then you are selling some portion of that attention to advertisers. So the sort of the dream of this is that you're the New York Times and you write, you have information that people want to pay attention to. You are, you, you know, you've written sober analysis of the news and you are breaking news for people. And so people pay attention to you. And then you say to Saks Fifth Avenue, buy a small square on this paper and I will, you know, people who are reading about the news will also see your square. And that way you've captured the attention of somebody. And as we've, as sort of mass media has progressed, we have an increasing number of things to which we might pay attention and a sort of uh, decreasing um, kind of, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Sense of responsibility around that attention, I suppose. Um, I mean, I don't want to pretend that like everything was great in 1940 or 1950. Absolutely wasn't. But like the, 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 as, as the number of cables on, as the number of channels on your TV increased, as the number of places you could get news from increased, you have more and more people looking to find, you know, more and more ways to attract attention to people and more reasons to do that. So that's like the situation that already exists. And then all of a sudden, you know, the internet and social media arrive and they just accelerate this beyond all comprehensibility, partly because all of a sudden you've multiplied the number of places to which you can pay attention by, you know, by several factors of 10. Like you're, you know, you've got not just individual, not just social networks, not just Twitter, not just Facebook, not just YouTube and Snapchat, but you've got millions of people on each one of these things that all of them competing and vying for attention in one way or another. And, you know, all of them sort of trying to scrape out and eke out just a little bit of that attention because that's how most people make money online from journalists to YouTube stars to even a musician like Kanye West 
sure, he sells concert tickets and he sells albums, but in order for people to know that he exists, that those things are there, he has to have them pay attention to him. So to me, and I'm sorry, but this is like a like an overly pedantic and annoyingly long explanation of the <laughs> dynamics of media that I'm sure all of your listeners and viewers already understand. But for me, what has changed since the days of Carrie Fisher, there's three or four things that have changed. One is that just that this attention dynamic is is um it's more competitive it's 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 harsher on people like it just it's less and less the case that that there is a kind of consensus around what's okay and what's not okay in those behaviors the other thing is that you know social media gives uh celebrities a direct direct access to fans in a way that just didn't used to exist that um i mean take for example tom cruise who uh you know i like i have no idea tom the question of whether or not tom cruise is mentally ill seems it seems really unlikely to me that he is or he would be diagnosed as such but remember when he was jumping on the couch on right. oprah in 2004 or whenever that was he was obviously going through some kind of phase or some kind of moment in his life where he was acting in ways that were totally consistent with mental illness um, and he had a team of people who managed to sort of like take, get him off the air for a while to have that stuff calm down, to have people stop paying attention to him. And he didn't have a Twitter or a Facebook or a YouTube channel where he could go and just continue without having to like get booked on Oprah or get booked on a talk show or this thing or the other. And this is, I think, one thing, you know, with somebody like Carrie Fisher say, had she wanted that attention, had that been a component of the way her mental illness manifested itself in the 1980s, I think it wouldn't have been easy for her to get on you know, Letterman or Carson or whatever that she would, it's not, you know, there was a, there was this set, there was a sort of buffer between the audience and the, the object of their attention. You know, fast forward, what, six years from Tom Cruise to Charlie Sheen, who, who has said that he was, he's been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and who was undergoing what seemed to me to be very clearly a manic episode. Um, this is the sort of tiger blood, you know, thing. And that was all happening more or less on Twitter, that Sheen was attracting that attention because he was he had his phone in his hand or his computer in front of him. And he didn't need to go through bookers. He didn't need to go through his publicists. He didn't need to go through teams of people to, like, get that uh, that the message of tiger blood out there into the world. So, like, that's I think that's that's a sort of structural an important sort of structural component to it, in addition to this sort of larger, like, you know, social media stuff. And then the last, sort of the last thing I'll say is that like the, um, the rise of social media is concomitant and in some ways like, uh, causative of the sort of decline of traditional journalism. Um, you know, that papers like the Times or papers like the, you know, papers tended to used to have geographical monopolies that meant that they had much more control over the stuff they wanted to cover and that, that they could push back against the kind of worst instincts and lowest common denominator stuff that they knew would get them attention, but that was probably irresponsible to cover one way or another. And that just doesn't, that, that, that no longer really exists. And I think, you know, for all of the, the good stuff that's come out of the democratization of media production, it also means that there, it's very difficult to figure out how to recreate a buffer against that exact sort of race to the bottom dynamic, where if you know you need attention and that's how you're going to stay afloat and stay alive, and I'm just talking purely as a journalist, then you, you at some point you need to make compromises about what you think is worth covering and not worth covering. And somebody like Charlie Sheen or somebody like Kanye West, like people want to read about that. And if that gets you an extra 50,000 page views that day, um, that might help put you over the hump for your monthly target that will help you sell ads that will allow you to write all the responsible journalism that you want to write. This is just sort of a sad reality. I think we've most accepted, but I think, you know, to, to the extent that we're all now competing for the same set of things, it's unclear how to sort of break out of that thing where you can re-inject some level of responsibility and say, you know, actually, this situation seems a lot dicier than I thought it was. This guy seems like he might not be well right now. Maybe we shouldn't be wall-to-wall -wall covering him. 
Anyway, I don't I don't know if I if I've completely stepped on your theory there or anything. No, well, I think uh, yeah, there's a lot there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Um, and my my theory maybe runs alongside it, but your theory actually makes more sense <laughs> than my theory. I would just note, you know, you mentioned like how you know the 20th century uh, news business worked. Um, you know, if if like if this had all happened 50 years ago and like the 1968 version of Kanye, whoever that performer would have been, went in and met with you know LBJ and there were some reporters there, like they maybe there'd be like one or two cameras there. Obviously, there'd be like you know. I mean, like, film cameras, like, there'd be still cameras. Right. And then, like, you know, a similar unhinged rant was unspooled. Like, it probably would have been kind of, like, semi-covered up. Like, it wouldn't yeah. have been, like, here's the lead story. There would have just been, like, a photo of them shaking hands or something and maybe a quote. But not, like, you know, the the man uh, spoke for 10 minutes extemporaneously, you know, mentioning blah, 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 blah. Like it just, right. So that was just a, like a different world. Well, this is, I mean, the, actually probably the, 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 the example of this, I have no idea what, there's like a famous photo of Elvis and Richard Nixon right. shaking hands. Right. And that's like late fat quaaluded up like Elvis. There's no way that Elvis and Richard Nixon had a coherent conversation about, I believe it was about like the war on drugs. Yes, or something. It, like, it, and it, there's it, absolutely no way that was a coherent conversation. Elvis wanted and, to be deputized to uh, help with right. the, fight against drugs and i i i imagine i mean i i imagine it was not dissimilar to the conversation kanye and trump had to to not dissimilar figures frankly and i think that like you're absolutely right this was a thing where like they had a great photo of them shaking hands and you know it was it, they, there's no footage of it or anything like that but i i think you're right i think it runs alongside this this kind of like the the i mean one way of putting it maybe would just the dynamic is really about gatekeepers that there there used to be in in a real way a set of gatekeepers in the media in politics in entertainment that ensured you know images were protected in one way or another that only certain news was was read and read about and though that the reign of gatekeepers has completely ended or there are still gatekeepers but it's a very different kind of gatekeeper now yeah and you know any um you know, there were like 50 journalists in that room, and if only if 49 of them agreed to embargo this footage of Kanye because it was too upsetting, and then the 50th one put it on YouTube, then you know the game is over. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. So the the so my theory, I guess, is just like um, reality TV, and it, it runs alongside social like social media. Um, but you know, from the beginning of reality TV, unstable characters were the most interesting ones. I mean, sometimes like the you know, like, like Amorosa on uh, the original apprentice, she wasn't unstable. She was like the conniving, you know, villain who uh, was always playing tricks on people and stuff like that. But as the genre has moved more towards like real housewives kind of things, then it's like people acting outrageous ways. And mm -hmm. that becomes what everyone talks about. Like on real housewives, when one of them, like they were at dinner at a restaurant and one of them like flipped up the table and stormed off. And right. I don't even know who these people are, but I know that like that happened on that show. Um, right. So Trump uh, is obviously a reality TV star, um, host of the apprentice, uh, Kanye married to the most famous, um, reality TV family in America. I don't know if I've never watched the Kardashian shows. I don't know if he like appears on that or if he's just kind of like a presence. Um, but he, you know, he must have taken something from the fact that he's hanging out with, yeah. with Kim. Uh, yeah. I mean, I know, I think, I think you're exactly right. Like, I, and I think that that's part of, like, I, I do, you know, I'd say social media, social media, social media, but like, I, I think I don't want to pretend that it's so brand new. And I think reality TV is exactly the same set of dynamics that, that are at hand here that like, 
you know, it's the acting outrageously, being outrageous, like being unpredictable. That's the stuff that people want to see is what stuff people want to watch. And dating back to the real world, the people whose names you can remember from the really early seasons of the real world, like Puck, say, from San Francisco, whenever, whatever year that was, are always the craziest people, the ones who are the most kind of outrageous and whatever else. I, I, I um, you know, and I, the, 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 the other thing I'll say about reality TV and it, the sort of relevance to this particular event is I think that, um, one of the things that's sort of really underrated or under-discussed in the relationship between reality TV and the current media environment is the sort of pure, the form of it as a um, videotaped um, kind of documentary style, um, uh, whatever the word I'm looking for is, documentary style, you know, show. Like the, the, the look and feel of it, it looks and feels like television news. And I think that... Um, as much as I'm sure that people can tell the difference between news and reality TV, I think the fact that the, those two things are so similar kind of often in form, in tone, and sometimes even in content. I'm thinking in particular of like Cops, which is sort of one of the original reality shows and the ways that Cops runs into and out of um, local news channels all the time, is you begin to lose a sense of the real distinction between like news and things that reporting about facts out there in the world and uh, products that have been created for your and for just solely for your entertainment. And like, in some ways, you know, like one of the things about writing about this and talking about this in 2018 is I'm not sure that I can advance a criticism much more sophisticated than the one that was being advanced by Neil Postman, the media scholar Neil Postman in the 80s when he was talking about po sort of politics as entertainment and the, the ways in which politics has turned into a form of entertainment. And I think that, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the same set of incentives that, that, that turned politics into entertainment are still at play today and haven't changed much and in fact have in many ways gotten worse. So, you know, like, Reality TV is 100% like a harbinger of this and 100% also a product of the incentives that create this same thing. Yeah. And, um, you know, who, who is the most famous consumer of TV in this country? It's Donald Trump. Uh, he loves watching yeah. TV. He loves watching Fox News. You know, he was a TV star. Um, he loves being on TV. Um, my cat is going to make a cameo appearance very soon. Um, but <laughs> yeah, who does, and, and at once, um, you know, a lot of the people he's hired, he hired them reportedly because they look good on TV. Like, uh, like oh, John, right. he, John like, Bolton. He basically casts his cabinet. I mean, he's like, this is, this is, you know, if you look like a justice, he'll nominate you to the Supreme Court. He liked Rick Stillerson because he looked like a Secretary of State. Yeah, there's been rumors that Janine Pirro, who hosts a show on Fox News, would be appointed to something in the administration. Uh, supposedly the, the reason he didn't want to hire Bolton was because he has a mustache and that offends Trump in some way. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's like a through the looking glass kind of, kind of thing where um where yeah just like the, the the line between reality i mean this has been said about reality television for a long time like the line between reality and um reality tv is getting thinner and thinner and the fact that the president is a reality tv star and watches tv all the time and seems to care more about what how things look on tv than how they really are in real life is like you know, multiple layers of refraction, uh, that could, um, yeah. that could make one, one, make one act crazy on social media, at least. Um, I wanted to talk about, um, YouTube because you talk about that as well. Um, yeah. you talk about, uh, someone named Logan Paul, who I have to admit, I'm only a little bit sure about who he is. I know he has a brother named Jake Paul, but I don't know the difference between them. Yeah. So for our viewers who don't know who these people are, can you 
explain their significance. Yeah. So, right. So Lo- the Paul brothers, Logan Paul is the older and was until recently the slightly more famous of the two. He got to start on Vine, which was this short video blogging and video sharing service that used to be owned. As a short, literally the clips were six seconds long. It used to be owned by Twitter since shut down. Um, but basically, you know, Vine, there was this sort of category of uh, social media star called a Vine star. And the idea was basically that you were goofy and funny and usually sort of non-threateningly handsome uh, for six seconds at a time. And you could build a large adolescent audience. I mean, they're, they're young. The, the Paul brothers are, I think, in their early 20s now. They were in their late teens when they sort of rose to stardom. They've since moved to YouTube um, where they make longer videos. But but the there's very little... Um, I'm trying to think, you know, I don't want to get into the curmudgeonly sort of, oh, they're famous for nothing, but they're famous for basically sort of just being approachable, being funny enough. They do pranks and stunts online and film themselves doing it and create this kind of parasocial relationship with a series of viewers, usually like adolescent um, men and women, adolescent boys and girls who are like into into them as characters, into what they do. They have, over the last year or so, the stuff has gotten sort of increasingly more criticized. There's two particular things. So, like, Jake Paul, the younger one, moved into a house with a bunch of friends, a sort of quiet block in L.A., where he apparently just pissed off all of his neighbors by just doing pranks and stunts in the street. And then also just his fans would show up outside the house all the time. Um, and then Logan, earlier this year, got in a ton of trouble for going to... Uh, I, I'm not going to get the name right. It's the Aoki Gahara Forest in Japan, which is known as Suicide Forest. And uh, people killed themselves a lot in the forest, I suppose. And Logan found a dead body and filmed himself sort of pro- like looking at it, prodding it, filmed the body itself. It was kind of a bizarre thing for him to have done. Bizarre thing for him to have then further on to like have edited together and uploaded it. And he was criticized like super widely for it. Um, so I don't know. I mean, that's sort of the, the, the 101, the Paul Brothers 101. Right. And they, in the YouTube world, they are like at the top or near the top in terms of like subscribers and view count. Yeah. I mean, they're huge. Um, and they're huge partly because they are increased, you know, they have over the last few years become sort of increasingly wacky and wild and like controversy has been actually very good for them. Their names are better known. You know, after Logan's controversy with the dead body, it has not sort of slowed him down or stopped him really. Right. And so, um, yeah, so there was, there was, you know, there was a backlash after the, um, the video in Japan came out. Um, and I think there was other stuff from that same trip where he was being, you know, culturally insensitive. But the main thing was filming this, um, body of a man who had hung himself in the forest and being like, whoa, dude, it's a dead body. Oh my God. Um, yeah. and then putting that out there with like, I assume ads in front, in front and behind it and yeah. so on and so forth. <laughs> And so he expressed some contrition and, but is it, is he kind of just like back to his old tricks once again? I guess that was like six months ago. Is, is, is everything like that? Yeah. I mean, I think they're all back. I mean, the big, the sort of the big thing for them right now is this guy, this other YouTube star named Shane Dawson, who has also gotten famous for sort of similar stunts and tricks is doing this long, um, eight part documentary series that I can't recommend your viewers actually watch. I'll do my best to sort of summarize. <laughs> Basically the, the point of it, he's, he's doing a documentary about Jake Paul, the younger brother. The central question of with, of which is, is Jake Paul a sociopath? So the idea is, uh, Shane is arguing a sort of very crude version of the dy- of the question that we're talking about and the dynamic we're sort of dancing around right here, which is the idea that like, in order to get as many 
fans and likes and views as possible on YouTube that Jake Paul acts in a way that would be consistent with sociopathy. And I just for the sake of um, being accurate here, it's worth you know saying that sociopathy is not actually like a diagnosis in the DSM. Um, it's basically the colloquial way we discuss uh, you know a set of sociopathic behaviors or whatever. But anyway, this is Shane's Shane's sort of theory. And it's partly meant to be a kind of soul-searching thing for Shane, too, where Shane Dawson is asking, is Jake Paul a sociopath? Am I a sociopath? Are all YouTubers sociopaths? Because this is the way we've chosen to make our money by by doing crazy things to get people to watch us and to view us. Yeah, and I mean, the the ultimate um, kind of sum up, summary of your article is like in the way that um, Facebook and Twitter made it so that uh, it made sense for companies to write clickbait type articles. Um, you know, they, they like created that economic opening has <laughs> in a similar way has uh, YouTube and social media um, in general created an opening for human clickbait as in your headline and human clickbait is people who are mentally <laughs> either they are mentally unwell or they're acting in a way that a mentally unwell yeah. person would act. I mean, if you think about like what clickbait is on the media sense, it's like some of the stuff that counts as clickbait, especially the, sort of the early days of it, it's basically incomprehensible. Like it's almost illegible, the kinds of headlines that you would read, you know, and the kinds of articles that were being done where you would have a headline that was supposed to tease, get somebody to click, get somebody to look at it. If you would put that in a regular newspaper, if you would put that as the title of a chapter of a book or something, it would have just been, it would have made no sense whatsoever. So I think that like the, the, that's, that's one reason that that metaphor is really powerful. I mean, I should say it's not mine. It's this uh, researcher named Catherine Lowe who it, like looks at sort of mental illness in online communities. And and it was her her question was this one about you know are we incentivizing essentially unhealthy behaviors just as we incentivized in the media like we incentivize in the media business sort of unhealthy headlines and unhealthy ways of covering the news. And I think that so you know in that same way that you had this this kind of flowering of this totally incomprehensible, totally illegible, total nonsense clickbait. Um, you know, uh, journalism, you now have the same, you, you, you start to see some of the same kind of incomprehensible, illegible, kind of mentally ill, you know, again, colloquially crazy behavior being encouraged and incentivized by YouTube or by Twitter, by the, but specifically by the sort of sorting algorithms that allow you to get that, that by which you try to get people to watch you or look at you. Right. Um, I think Maybe this will be the the final question. Um, you know, I when I was prepping for this, I remembered a phrase that um, Randy Jensen used on Twitter. Um, she called it the platform for ironic depressives, and <laughs> um, this is relating to her getting like a like a so someone had flagged like a tweet she wrote, and Twitter sent her an email saying like some of your recent tweets may have displayed like suicidal ideation or self-harm. Like we just wanted to check in on you. Here's like the number for suicide hotline or something along those lines. And she was like, can you believe everyone? <laughs> can you believe like they're doing this on Twitter, <laughs> the platform for ironic depressants uh, where people <laughs> often talk about the depression and are often do it in, our, in an ironic way. Um, so, you know, I mean, social media is, as you've pointed out in this article, like exploitative of people acting in an erratic, eccentric fashion. Um, it's also a place where people who have a mental illness um, can talk about it openly. Um, maybe they're under a pseudonym so they feel more comfortable, or maybe it's just they see other people talking about it, uh, and so they can and so they can talk about it um, openly. Um, 
you know, I, I actually, I used social media, if we count YouTube as social media, to talk about my own uh, mental illness in an episode of this show um, a couple of months ago, talking about my experiences with depression. And so, and if you think, like, 15 years ago, if, if someone had a mental illness, like, how would they communicate that to the outside world? I guess, like, they could send, like, a mass email in the era before email, they'd have to like do like phone calls or face-to-face right. conversations or like maybe a rumor would yeah. kind of leak out and people would tell each other like, oh, you know, he's been diagnosed with depression. He's not doing really well these days. Whereas now you can tweet about it and there's lots of people who do it, like as Brandy said, uh, ironically, and maybe they're, they don't actually have clinical depression. They're feeling a little bit down and they say they said they're feeling depressed today or something like that. But then, so, you know, they can get affirmation from their peers Saying like you know we we love you and appreciate you, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there's yeah there's this other side to it, and I think yeah and Twitter weirdly is has become a place for a lot of people with this disposition to congregate and talk to each other. Yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah, I guess that's that's like maybe I'm trying to end on a positive note or something that people can. No, I mean I think and I think that it's important to like look you know in this context absolutely that like especially Twitter as it's as a kind of universal chat room in some way can be an enormously positive place to rally around, um, you know, issues that are important to you, mental illness being like a, like a pretty salient and important example. And like, I think this is true. Like the thing to remember, you know, as depressing as some of this conversation has been, uh, you know, about the sort of the death of, uh, or, or the, the, the shifting mores of the attention economy or whatever is that like, in many ways, the, the, the end of the gatekeeping media system is a good one that, um, you know, the, the gatekeepers who would have, stopped the cameras when Kanye was, you know, and, and ended the kind of rubbernecking when Kanye was granting at the president, um, would also, were also preventing important voices from being heard that, uh, are now finally, thanks to social media being heard. And so I, you know, for me, the, the sort of the challenge going forward is figuring out how, you know, like it's, it's as with any kind of you know, change, te- technological changes. How do you retain all the things that are important about this and good about this? That we're giving more people voices, that we're hearing things that we haven't heard before, while also changing the, while also ensuring that the kind of negative, um, the negative incentives, that the the, the problems that have been created by uh, or accelerated by social media um, are are, um, I don't know what the word is, are, are, are moderated at the very least. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because it, it seems like it seems, this is one of those things, it seems unquestionably true to me that, um, giving more people the ability to talk and especially to meet other people is, is a good thing, that it's good to, uh, open up people's social lives in that way and their ability to have those conversations. So to me, I think the, the, the trick, the thing that, that is the real problem at heart, and this is my attempt at being positive and I have 2% battery left. So if I, if I cut out, then, <laughs> then we won't be able to save the internet at all. That, um, that there's, that it really is this focus on attention, that attention is the, is the real problem. That connection is, tends to be very good and connect and what happens in a situation like the one you're talking about are people being connected with one another to listen and to hear and to um, commiserate and to get validation but that attention is a problem because it's a it's it's competitive essentially because you're competing with other people to get that stuff and that's what encourages negative behaviors is what encourages people to rubberneck it's what encourages media companies to encourage rubbernecking um and so i think that figuring out how we can have like the the challenge you know god help us the challenge of the next 
the next phase of the internet is figuring out how to retain all of the like the good stuff about social media, all of the the positive interaction, while uh, while sort of ending the 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 demands of the attention economy, ending the attention economy as its sort of undergirding, as its foundational aspect. I don't know how we do that. I mean, you know, like I, I think there are a lot of ideas and a lot of ways to do it, but it strikes me that that's the kind of that's the problem. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that's a good place to end since you are low on battery. Um, so thanks, for, thanks. Thank you so much for coming on uh, and talking about this. Yeah, um, people can follow me. you on Twitter. Is it Max underscore Reed? That's it. R E A D, like a book. Um, and you are a, a very good person to follow on Twitter for all, all sorts of things. Um, <laughs> thank you for saying that. Uh, so thanks to our viewers and listeners, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks. See you, Aria. Yeah, that was great. All right. Great, thank you. All right, I'm looking forward to it. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.